To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. On the 31st, we will be out of the EU, free to chart our own course as a sovereign nation, taking back control of our money, our laws, our borders and our trade. We are ready to move to the next phase in our relationship. We want our future relationship to be as close as possible in full respect of our principles. We don't yet know what sort of a Brexit we'll get. We don't yet know whether it's going to be a roaring success or a horrible failure. And five years down the line, when we next have a general election, those issues are then possibly going to come back. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, we're focusing a little bit, at least today, at the beginning, on what's going on with the government's policies as far as security is concerned and terrorism, because, of course, there was the attack in Streatham on Sunday. Yeah, the second one in just over two months, I believe, of a released um, convicted terrorist. And this is something that is once again making the papers today. So very much a discussion topic that the government now wants to keep terrorists in prison for longer uh, under the new reforms convicted terrorists will be made to serve a minimum of two-thirds of their sentences that's up from a half currently uh, michael gove has been speaking about this he says the emergency legislation will be brought by the end of the week we need to be able to prove that people are no longer a danger to the public if you have people who are in the grip of an ideology that ideology means that they want to kill innocent people in order to advance a particular religious and political view they are a danger to society Well, the government's come under increasing pressure of the early release of prisoners following the attack in Streatham we were talking about, and it comes just nine weeks after the other one near London Bridge. Now, that attacker had been released a year earlier after serving half of his 16-year sentence. Well, joining us now is Peter Dawson, who's director at the Prison Reform Trust. Peter, thanks very much for being with us. I mean, it should be said, first of all, this is... This is not making people serve any longer than they are actually sentenced to. It's simply not letting them out quite so early. So is there really a problem with that? Um, Well, look, I completely understand the public concern and why the government feels it needs to respond. Um, One of the things that's um, frustrating for everybody in this is that the law is very complicated, and it's very complicated because Parliament has made it that way. Um, There have been endless changes to sentencing law, so it's not surprising that people don't always understand the facts. But if you are serving a prison sentence, in most cases, what you know and what the court says, because this is what the law is, is that you will serve half of it in custody, you will serve a portion under license, and there'll be a final portion where you can be recalled to prison to serve the rest of it if you commit another offence. Now, um, if you're a prisoner, then the portion in custody is obviously the, the most painful, the most punitive element of that. And to change that is really significant. But I understand why the government wants to do it. But let, let's be clear about what, what the current system is. It's not early release. It's what the law says should happen. And the law says that because that's what Parliament determined. It's automatic, but it's not. It's not early. What worries me when I hear Michael Gove saying you need to be able to prove that people are no longer a danger is that he's encouraging the public to believe something is possible that really isn't. 
you can't prove that. You can't eliminate risk. Risk, there is always an element of judgment about it. But the reality of the matter, though, is, Peter, there have been two attacks now in almost two months. There is some level of urgency here to create a solution, even if it's something temporary. Surely the government has to act quickly in a, in a simple way. Well, it, it, it is acting quickly. I'm not sure it is acting in a simple way. So there are some really important questions to be asked about the government's plans. The first is whether actually we've learned all the lessons from the cases that you mentioned. So we don't know whether all the steps that were taken before the release of um, Sudesh Aman uh, covered off all the risks that were predictable. Uh, people are released from prison quite regularly where there is still a concern about risk. The license conditions that are set should take account of that risk. And sometimes it's appropriate for people to be arrested as they walk out of the prison because there are further charges that can be brought. Now, we just don't know the details of this case, but were those steps considered? The second thing is that this, this temporary proposal, this short-term proposal, will mean that people will spend longer in prison, but they're still released at the end of that time. And if the parole board has judged that they still present a risk, the chances are they'll now be released with no supervision at all. Now, does that make us safer? I, I suspect not, and the government isn't clear about what it will do at the end of that sentence period. Well, Peter, isn't the issue then, I mean, you said yourself, it's almost impossible to be sure when someone comes out that they're not going to be a danger. If that's the case, why not return to the indeterminate sentences that existed, that were introduced by the Labour government, the Blair administration, where you could ensure that people, if, if you don't know whether they're going to be dangerous, you can make sure they stay inside? Well, the answer to that question is that those sentences have produced a massive injustice for literally thousands of people who have been kept in prison when there isn't a reason to do so, where the prison system has made things worse, not better. Because people can't prove a negative. You can't prove that you're not a risk. Um, and our system of justice has always rested on the principle that the punishment should fit the crime. You lock people up for what they have done, not for what you, they might do in the future. And there's a very good reason for that, which is that we don't know, we can't predict. Now, clearly, terrorism uh, poses some really difficult questions, and the motivation for terrorism is different from the motivations for many other crimes. We understand that risks are higher, but we don't have an option in a civilized right. society of saying that we will lock up thousands of people potentially. So then what do you do? If you're the prime minister, you've got this public pressure. What is your quick solution to the problem? There isn't a quick solution. I'm afraid that's, that's what being prime minister, that's what being in government is about. You have to accept that there are lots of different things that need to be done to reduce the risk. But if you promise to the public that risk can be eliminated. You're not telling the truth. All right, Peter, we're going to have to leave it there. Peter okay. Dawson, thank you very much. Director of the Prison Reform Trust joining us on the line. Joining us now is Tobias Elwood, Conservative MP for Bournemouth East. And many people remember Tobias Elwood was, in fact, caught up in a terrorist incident at the Houses of Parliament uh, and, and, and was, was involved very directly in trying to save the officer who was, in fact, killed in that incident. Tobias, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, welcome to the programme. Do you think that what the government is proposing about extending the amount of time people stay in prison in these sort of circumstances is any kind of answer to the situation we've got? There is a complex problem we're facing here, and there need to be many facets to the solution, one of which is giving us more time to assess whether it's safe for these individuals to be put back into you know, the, the general population. 
And unfortunately, the last two cases that we've seen, tragically, have been people who have got out on early release without a proper check, with nobody confirming to say, let's do a stock check on this individual. Is it safe to put them back? So these are the rules that are going to be changed. The end of automatic release, greater investment in our probation services, in counterterrorism specialists that can do that such a difficult uh, assessment uh, that needs to be actually done. But, uh, you know, you touched on my connection with terrorism. Sadly, it, it's bigger than that. I lost my brother in the Bali bombing in 2002. I only raise that because it's 2002. A year before was the uh, 9-11, you know, the attacks on the Twin Towers. This is a problem that's been around for 20 years. So much as we can be uh, put more money into our first response, an amazing job that they did a couple of days ago, more money can be put into probation service. Until we tackle the cause of why people are being recruited, why they're being indoctrinated to believe that they're going to be rewarded for this behavior, I'm afraid the challenge will continue. And Tobias, good to have you. Isn't the answer here really in rehabilitation? I'm looking at some stats from the Institute for Government uh, saying that spending on prisons, 14% lower in real terms than 29-10. And they're saying a drop-off in efforts to rehabilitate uh, prisoners can be linked directly to those cuts. So isn't that really one of the uh, cornerstones of a solution? I think that's a fair comment, but we should emphasise that those who are uh, put away because of terrorist charges do receive different um, rehabilitation programs than, than the general population. But we're seeing more money being put into this. Uh, so absolutely is right. I think we saw the announcement yesterday by Robert Buckland, the Justice Secretary, to say more effort needs to, to be put into here. We are talking only about a few dozen individuals. There was something called control orders, which um, listeners may uh, remember. These were these uh, orders where you, you couldn't uh, use from a sort of a, a legal perspective justification to keep them behind bars uh, because they hadn't actually yet to commit any terrorist attack, but they were likely to. It's a very difficult gray area on you know, the rights of the individuals, the freedoms and so forth, but also the need for us to keep our nation safe. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And I've got one for you. The ban on buying new petrol diesel or hybrid cars in the UK is going to be brought forward from 2040 now to 2035. The government's going to make the announcement today. This is part of the UN Climate Summit that's going to be held in Glasgow in November, although it could be overshadowed by criticism from the former head of COP26, who was recently sacked by the Prime Minister. Claire O'Neill, who was previously a Conservative MP, has accused Boris Johnson of promising money and people to support her work, but failing to deliver. There's a rumbling controversy going on there. And I always love these ideas that governments can promise things well outside the time when they probably will still be sitting and they can say oh yes it'll be 2035 by which time 
Probably Boris Johnson will be retired, but we'll see. Meanwhile, several senior journalists have walked out of a briefing on Boris Johnson's Brexit plans after Downing Street ordered colleagues from some major news organisations to leave. Selected journalists were invited to number 10 for a briefing from officials, but other correspondents also tried to get in. Now, when they arrived, they were told to stand on opposite sides of the entrance hall with number 10's comms director, Lee Kane, inviting one side to enter and telling the others to leave. When his actions are questioned, he told reporters, we're welcome to brief whoever we want whenever we want. The journalists excluded, including outlets viewed as left-wing or critical of the government. But there's some weird choices, I have to say. I think the iPaper was excluded. Was it? Yes. I mean, not an obvious, but anyway. Very strange goings yeah. on, but um, I sense the hand of Dominic Cummings. I could be wrong. Ooh, nice. Okay, right, I've got here one for you. Uh, Daisy Cooper, she's a new Liberal Democrat MP. She spoke to us on this programme, in fact. She's written a uh, a piece for The Guardian about life as a new MP, all the quirks of Parliament. She talks about in the cloakroom, every constituency has its own coat hanger for hanging up your sword. Who's done that in the last few hundred years? Uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg at a while. Well, yeah. Uh, She also gets asked about the other weird behaviours in Parliament, and she mentions bobbing. This is standing up to be able to ask a question of a minister. Uh, I like this line. I'm not sure who the Daily Express things comes out on top in the Brits v Germans beach towel wall but no tourist would ever beat an MP to the sunbeds during recess <laughs> talking about the, uh, the the fight to get a seat in the chamber uh, and she concludes saying we have a public duty not to mis- demystify parliament but to drag it kicking and streaming into the 21st century she says there are many others of the new intake who agree with her so we'll have to see whether any progress happens there but uh, certainly it's be been a lot of kicking and screaming pretty arcane while, for a while i can't see it changing anytime soon doesn't seem likely anyway well, let's come right up to speed and right up to date with what's going on with brexit because i have a book in front of me which says brexit what next the uk in a changing europe it is not curiously like a manifesto I mean, in fact it isn't it's the subject of a vast amount of research uh, and a lot of interesting lines about where on earth we are going um, and with me is one of the lead authors professor of politics at Queen Mary University Tim Bale uh, who joins us here in the studio so first of all Tim what is the purpose of this exactly well uh, UK and Changing Europe of which I'm the deputy director uh, wants to make it very clear that although the government's line is Brexit is done uh, that's not quite <laughs> accurate in fact there's still an awful lot to do since We've left, that's true, uh, but we still have to negotiate uh, our future relationship with the EU on a whole range of issues, not just trade. Uh, There's borders, there's immigration, uh, Northern Ireland is particularly uh, important. And in fact, a whole um, series of things which affect not only our economy, actually, but also our overall relationship with Europe and indeed even things like security and defence. So I've got to ask you, in your expert opinion, how likely is all of this to get done by the end of the year? I think it's a little bit difficult (laughs) to imagine a comprehensive trade agreement being negotiated by December. I mean, it's possible that the government could come up with some kind of interim so-called bare-bones arrangement. Um, But I think there is a significant risk, and uh, one or two of the authors uh, stress this, of uh, what some people are calling No Deal 2.0. In other words, us, quote-unquote, and I know Brexiteers don't like this phrase, crashing out. I suppose we're already WTO rules? Yeah, WTO rules, or as we now know it, the Australian style oh, deal, yes. even though in fact Australia doesn't have a deal with the EU. That's what the government have decided to call it now. So, it, given given that situation, and there's a load of other things you list in here. I mean, it's not just even just getting the deal. There's a whole series of bodies need to be set up to take on responsibilities from the EU. Environmental protection. You also say that security could be a big problem in all this. In your opinion, is it the government simply hasn't got into thinking about that, or they've decided? that they don't really care, it just needs to get pushed through? Well, 
I think there's probably a difference between what the government is doing and saying publicly and what it's doing behind the scenes. I think behind the scenes, uh, you know, there's scrambling going on to actually uh, get uh, the civil service uh, up to speed and up and running and create some of the institutions uh, outside of the civil service uh, that are needed. So uh, hopefully in some ways what we're seeing is the government, you know, like a swan, as it were, <laughs> gliding not necessarily smoothly along the water and underneath paddling furiously to, to get all this stuff done. Having said that, I mean, once again, there is very, very limited time uh, to do all this. Uh, and also, to be honest, probably limited capacity. I mean, the number of sort of trade experts that are kicking around uh, with nothing much to do uh, is probably quite limited. Uh, and also just people's you know, time and capacity, headspace even, to, to get to thinking about these things is, is limited too. So you say a bare bones trade deal might be possible. What would the impact of that be materially for the man and woman on the street here? Well, uh, I think the impact for the man and woman on the street would probably come uh, as regards the businesses they work for. We have to remember that the vast majority of people are employed not in the public, but in the private sector. So a bare bones agreement wouldn't give business very much certainty. And one of the problems that we identify really is once again, uh, the fact that businesses are being called on in some ways by the government to plan, but not really uh, able to know what they are planning for. Uh, now, that may mean that, of course, investment is put on hold, as it has been in some ways for, for the last three years. I think there was the view that somehow once we left, uh, investment will suddenly flood into the British economy. But if businesses are still in the situation uh, of not quite knowing the, the, the kind of rules, the regulations, uh, the, the, the environment in which they're going to be operating, that investment isn't going to come through as quickly as people hoped. But what seems to be agreed by the government, I even heard it from, I think, Michael Gover the other day, is that the idea of a frictionless system of trade is just not going to happen. No, I, I mean, I, I think Mr Gover's made that very clear, but uh, <laughs> there are levels of friction, <laughs> as we all know. I mean, uh, you know, a, a bit of friction at the edges is copable with, you know, but you know, if we're talking about things beginning to lock up in some uh, situations, then that could be very difficult. And if you think you're a manufacturing uh, company, particularly if you're in the automotive industry, and that's uh, one of the areas that we talk about in our report, we're talking about a sort of just-in-time manufacturing process, which requires parts, you know, to to move very swiftly across borders in particular sequences. And there was one interesting thing I saw this week, which was that the, the difficulties that would come from that sort of situation, from a series of tariffs of whatever form they are, would disproportionately affect the Red Wall area, which was the very one that Boris Johnson took from Labour to some extent and wants to keep. Well, certainly some areas, uh, we would say that was true. I mean, the automotive industry is a good example. We're talking about the West Midlands there. Uh, that would be a problem for some of the Conservatives who've won seats in, in that area. But I don't want to give the impression that it's just manufacturing that has got a problem here. Services have got a real issue as well. Um, uh, financial services in particular, which are a huge part, obviously, of the, of the British economy. Um, it's going to get difficult with the end of passporting, you know, the idea that because you do, you know, trade in Britain, you're allowed to do trade in uh, other parts of the uh, the EU. That's going to go. So they're going to have to prove equivalence. That's not so easy. There's going to be compliance costs to that. We may see some uh, financial services uh, firms move into Europe uh, and away from the UK as a result to allow them to do that kind of trade. I'm not saying they're all going to disappear. And that's one thing I think the, the report makes very clear. But uh, as it becomes clear that 
you know, some of the routes to business are being cut off, then business will do what any business rationally would do and, and move accordingly. And another topic that you cover is security. You mentioned that the EU won't allow the UK access to the European arrest warrant, Schengen information system, the European criminal record information system. How does the UK move beyond that, particularly with reference to what we were talking about in the first part of this programme, things like terrorist sentencing and, and terror prevention? How does the UK assure that it is moving ahead in that field? Well, I mean, I think here, although there are serious risks there, in some senses, the seriousness of the risks probably mean that cooperation in that area is, in fact, going to be more forthcoming from both sides. Uh, they stand to lose an awful lot if uh, if there is friction, to, <laughs> to, to use that phrase, uh, in those areas. And I suspect, because in some ways, it's a rather more kind of discreet area in which people know each other quite well. We're not talking about lots and lots of businesses. We're talking about government to government, security force to security force uh, relationships. I think probably deals can be done in that area, uh, not necessarily ad hoc, but you know, in a way, moving forward with some kind of permanent arrangements. Tim, I was struck by one line in your your publication on this. You said ministers have refused to be honest with the public about the choices they'll make, particularly in terms of economic impact. I mean, do you really think they have actually not been honest? Is it a deliberate? Is it, are they lying? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> uh, who'd want to accuse a politician well, of lying? Right, but that's the tenor of what you're I saying. I mean, uh, you know. The L word is a tempting one to use when we are talking about Boris Johnson's assurance, for example, that there will be no checks between Britain uh, and uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, th that is very difficult to, to see happening, to be honest. If, if Northern Ireland is both in and out, there will have to be some checks on the border. And uh, the Northern Ireland authorities have already made quite th that quite clear. Uh, we've also had the European Union making that quite clear, and indeed uh, Northern Ireland businesses and people who facilitate trade between uh, Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. So that's, that's one piece of, uh, if you like... Uh, Dishonesty? Um, economy, economy with the actuality, to quote Alan Clark. But also, I think the main problem here is that, you know, there is a very big trade-off here. There is, you know, the autonomy for the UK that politicians, certainly in the Conservative Party, want on the one hand, and then there is access to the single market on the other. And there is a trade-off between those two things. And it is, I think, you know, disingenuous to pretend that there is no trade-off there. There is. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.